The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Christmas is done. It's over. We're past the 25th. It is time to retire your Mariah Carey and Michael Buble albums, pack up your ornaments, and put your tree at the side of the road. I'm excited to be done with all these endless Christmas commercials telling me what I need to buy, what types of food to get, and how to prepare and serve them. And especially those Hallmark movies with their cliche dialogue and predictable ending. We get it. The big businesswoman meets the small town guy. It's going to be perfect. And yet, here we are. The Sunday morning after Christmas, with the tree, the candles, the manger still up, reading the story of the Magi, a Christmas story, but perhaps not a Christmas story as it should be. We often place the wise men in the nativity scene, and that's not completely accurate, for in fact, this story takes place roughly two years after that first Christmas night. If you're like your pastor Hayden, You might put the Magi in another room just to make the point that much more clear. But today, if you really enjoy Christmas and don't want it to end, this is a Christmas story for you. But if you're tired and you're ready to be done and move on to New Year's and get to things, then forget it. It's not a Christmas story. You guys can choose. But this morning, we are going to explore this passage through the lens of Richard Foster's book, which I understand you're going through streams of living water. And today we're going to be looking at the evangelical stream. Now, before we dive into the passage and see how God's evangelistic nature is taking place in here, we should best define what the term evangelical means, because it has a wide variety of meanings, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page to start. And of course, the evangelical stream does not belong to a single denomination, and no one can claim that they do it best, though many have tried throughout history. In fact, uh, when people hear the word evangelical, a lot of times they think of that Protestant denomination in the southern United States, the evangelical church, which is fair. But today we're going to unpack it uh, from its word meaning. Particularly, we're going to start with the Greek. And in Greek, the word evangelism comes from euangelion, which is good news. It comes in two parts. The first, the you, which is good, and angelion, which we can translate as angel or messenger or message. So together, they form the good news. And this is the focus of the evangelism stream for Foster, the good news in all its dimensions and how we bring it forward. The gospel of Jesus is this good news, and the gospel of Jesus is the defining feature of evangelism. And to help us understand the vast nature of this topic, Foster breaks it down into three distinct themes so that we might better understand how to live into this evangelical lifestyle. And today, this morning, using the story of the Magi, we will explore each of these three themes as a means to orient ourselves to how it looks in life. And the first is faithful proclamation of the gospel. And this theme is significant to the Christian experience as it is an instruction we receive from Jesus himself. At the end of Matthew's gospel, the good news, Jesus charged his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I mean, have you ever had some good news given to you? I mean, you just have to tell everyone. You know, it's the end of December. For students, we've just come through final exams and papers. And if you pass that really difficult class, oh boy, you want to tell everyone. So just so you all know, I did really well in my Greek exegesis class this past term. And also, being Christmas time, I don't know about you guys, but my Facebook feed has been filled with engagement photos. It's the time of year for everyone to get engaged. And they want to share it. And I get it. After I proposed to my wife, I spent the next morning making umpteen phone calls, telling everyone I thought could possibly care. I did this thing. I just couldn't keep it to myself. Now, in our story, the Magi, the protagonists, they're not the proclaimers of the gospel, though I'm sure they walked at least 500 miles and 500 more. But they were likely the recipients of some type of good news. Now, Matthew does not give us a whole lot of detail about you know, how the Magi decided that the star they saw related to the king of the Jews. So we're going to have to use a little bit of conjecture and a little bit of storytelling to fill in the gaps. Now, it is possible that these Magi from the east heard from the Jewish people and the communities living in places such as Persia and Babylon, to which they had all been exiled, about the Jewish faith. They had likely come into contact with you know, religious leaders of the synagogues there and of the, the sacred text they hold, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And they may have even read it themselves and attempted to understand the Jewish faith and how it worked in the vast fabric of the universe. And in doing so, they might have come across this passage in Numbers, chapter 24, 17 in our Bibles, which reads, I see him, but not now. I be behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, this is entirely conjecture on the part of the scholars because we don't have this written in our Gospels, but it seems reasonable to me that the Magi heard about this promise that a king of the Jewish people would be born over and rule them. So the star was the sign then that they needed, and so they left their homes and traveled to Jerusalem. And it was through the spoken word of the Jews in their communities, through the written text, that the good news was proclaimed to them. And this leads us to the second theme that Foster identifies as a key dimension of the evangelical lifestyle, which he calls the faithful repository. And I'm going to quote him because his definition is excellent. So he says, this evangel message, that good news, has been faithfully preserved to us in Scripture. The Bible is the word of God written, just as Jesus is the word of God living. So Scripture is central to the evangelical theme. And this theme is more obvious in our passage this morning with the Magi. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they think a king must be born in a royal city. Jerusalem, it's been the house of the kings since the time of David. And if you're going to find a king, you had best look in a palace. So they arrive at the palace of Herod. And now as readers of the gospel, we know Jesus is not there. We know he was born in a stable and laid in a manger in Bethlehem. But the Magi don't. They've only gotten part of the way, courtesy of the star and the prophecy. And so here they are in Jerusalem, trying to figure out where do we go from here? He's not in the palace. What's next? So Herod brings forward those chief priests, the teachers of the law, men who have dedicated their lives to the study of the Jewish scriptures and how they had best keep them, and says, do you guys know anything about this? And they present a prophecy from the prophet Micah to the Magi. 
It's found in Micah 5.2 in our Old Testament that says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. The dedication of the chief priests and the teachers of the law is evident, as Matthew seems to tell that they quickly come out with this idea of where the Messiah has been born. They know the words of God. They've studied the scriptures and know that they are crucial to understanding God and all of his promises. It is possible that they came to this quickly or over deliberation. Perhaps they deliberated in days past and, you know, after fighting tooth and nail, they said, this is what it means. So they're able to come up with it like that. And this understanding of scripture, this coming together and wrestling with it as it's as the final authority on all things related to God, is present in a lot of denominations. It's present in the Christian Reformed Church, I would say, that as a church body, we affirm sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone, because Latin makes everything sound just that much better. In scripture, as presented in the Holy Bible, is the supreme authority over all other writings and experiences of faith. That's why when the Magi came and were seeking the Messiah, of the Jews, they turned to the religious leaders and they turned to the scriptures because they knew that that is where they would find the answers. And that brings us into that final theme that Foster presents, and that is the faithful interpretation of the message. We see the study and the interpretation of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They bring forward this prophecy as the one that the Magi are looking forward. They spent their time delving into the scriptures, and so they were confident that this is what the Magi were looking forward. And so the Magi heard the words of scripture, they heard it interpreted for them, they followed the words of the prophet Micah, and they arrived in Bethlehem. And when they arrived, they find Jesus. They recognized the truth of the scripture that they had been told, that they had read, they recognized the star, and they worshipped him. Because of their experience with scripture, because of their experience with the interpretation and coming together in community, they were brought towards Christ, and they were rewarded with his person, and they worshipped him. So now we have a story of wise men from the East, pillars of their respective religion, that come to Bethlehem to worship a child. We see the importance of scriptures as the word of God that informed the Magi in following the star in the sky. Scripture alone dictated their experience of God, and it led them to an experience of God which affirmed the Scripture. The two must go hand in hand. And it is that experience of God that allowed the Magi to see the star for what it was. For perhaps when they first saw the star, they might have said, oh, I wonder what this is. It can't possibly point to Israel. I mean, they might have looked at the star to the east. There's a lot of land to the east of Persia and Babylon, and they might have attributed it to the greatest political power of the era, to Rome. Clearly, a star of this importance must point to something of the emperor of the whole known world. But they were convinced that this star pointed to Israel. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were presented with that prophecy, and they obeyed it, and they went to Bethlehem. There is something greater at work than just the words on the page. We can turn to the Apostle Paul to find a bit of clarity in this matter, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, that says, What we have received is not a spirit of this world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given to us. That is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual reality with Spirit-taught words. The ability to receive the words of Scripture, to understand them and then act upon them, is facilitated by the Holy Spirit. The wisdom of the Scripture is from the Spirit, and so we need the Spirit to understand it. We cannot say whether the Magi were aware of the Spirit leading them, but clearly the Holy Spirit had to be at work in their hearts and in their minds to bring them to these conclusions that they might have otherwise missed if they had relied on their own intellect and their own understanding of how the world worked. And we do know that God did speak to them through a dream and that they did listen to the leadings of God as they went home by a different route to avoid talking to Herod. And they listened because they must have known that this was the voice of the God that they had just been presented to in Bethlehem. So we have an image that the Spirit of God must accompany the words of Scripture in the evangelistic stream. Otherwise, it's words on a page, full of power, but missing that thing that fixes it in our hearts and our lives if we do so without the Spirit. And thankfully, this story also gives us an image of what it looks like to read Scripture without the Spirit. It has always been a question of mine, why was it only the Magi that went? They stood there in that palace amongst Herod and his chief officials, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They all heard the same prophecy from Micah. They all heard the same story of the star that rose in the east that the Magi believed pointed to the king of the Jews. And yet the Magi went alone. In order to understand this, we must take a little bit more closer look at who the Magi were. Now, the Magi, they're men from the east, from Persia, from Babylon. They were skilled in the arts of divination and astrology. They advised kings and rulers on matters of war and peace and trade based on what they saw in the stars and the spirits. These were powerful, mystical men. And these are not the first Magi that we encounter in Scripture. A key example for understanding the relationship of the Jewish people to the Magi, we will turn to Daniel where Daniel is pitted against the astrologers and the sorcerers of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who desired his dreams to be interpreted, and he had many. The Magi of the Babylonian court are repeatedly shown to be inferior to Daniel, not only in the diets they consumed, but also in his ability to interpret dreams. The Magi could simply not do it, but Daniel could. And so when we come back, to the court of Herod, and we see the Magi standing opposite of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they know this story of Daniel. They know that the Magi are inferior spiritual uh, counselors and leaders to those who know the one true God, the ones who know Jehovah. And so they probably looked at them with disdain and disgust. How could these astrologers from the Far East have any knowledge of God in the Messiah? when for countless stories through their history, they were shown to be completely off the mark. They can't know a thing. God is not with them. So let's ignore them. And besides, even if the Magi were onto something, the chief priests and the teachers of the law wouldn't be caught dead in the company of these Eastern mystics. Absolutely not. They were very concerned with the company that they kept. 
We see many examples in the Gospels where the Pharisees and the chief priests and teachers of the law criticize Jesus for the company he keeps. When Jesus calls his disciple Matthew, Matthew invites him and throws a grand dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees are quick to say, what, who are you that you would keep such distasteful company? And if we look in Luke's Gospel, a woman who he describes simply as a sinner, but we might suggest she might be a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. She pours perfume on Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her tears and her hair. Again, the Pharisees are indignant. How could Jesus not know who this woman is that is touching him? How could he let her touch him? They, even if they believed the Magi were onto something, even if they believed in that prophecy that the Messiah was in Bethlehem, they wouldn't be caught dead with them. And so they stayed in the palace of Herod, more concerned with their political maneuverings than in realizing Jesus. And so these people, they stayed in the palace, and that's why the Magi went alone. They read the scripture. They brought the prophecy to the Magi, yet they did not believe it. Instead of opening their hearts to the message of the scripture, to the truth of that prophecy that the Messiah was in Bethlehem at that point, they closed themselves off from the word for fear of being associated with the wrong people. They covered their hearts in disdain and disgust and separated themselves. And so they missed an opportunity to come before Jesus, to draw near and worship the one who would bring them salvation. And so the story of the Magi is so much deeper than those gifts that they bring, those three gifts that we love to talk and sing about. It is about our first encounter with the mission of Jesus, that mission to bring the gospel, the good news, that euangelion to all people, regardless of their place of birth, of their religious beliefs, their political association, or sexual orientation. What we have here in Matthew's gospel is an open door for all to come before Jesus, for all to present their gifts to him, and for all to worship him. I mean, this story is an evangelistic marvel of the day, and it invites us to participate in that same mission. It invites us to read the words of scripture, to act on them, regardless of the company it would put us in, regardless of who we might have to associate with. Because Jesus calls us, like we read in that Great Commission, to go and bring the gospel to all peoples of all nations, from Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, we're not in Jerusalem and Samaria. We are here in the ends of the earth. Hamilton is the ends of the earth. And we are called to bring that message to all people here. And so today, we should ask ourselves, what barriers are preventing me from telling my neighbor about Jesus? What barriers are preventing me from talking about it with my coworkers? Am I afraid that they might reject me? Or am I afraid that they'll invite me into their homes and their communities? And what will that look like if I'm seen with those people of ill repute, those people who we might not agree with their lifestyle? The story of the Magi asks us to do away with all of that because Jesus is here for all people. Because if we harden our hearts like the chief priests and the teachers of the law, we will miss opportunities to come and meet Jesus because he's there with open arms waiting to receive them. And how could we keep that message of grace and mercy to ourselves? 
to, to argue the finer points of theology and doctrine when the grace and mercy of Jesus is right in front of us and inviting others to come before him. And so today, let us join together and think about one person that we have not yet shared the good message with. And pray and ask God to provide us with opportunity and the courage, because we need a whole lot of courage some days to share the gospel. I know I do. To share it with those that might seem hostile or difficult, or we just might not know how they respond. Because that's the majesty of Jesus. That is what he has come for, for all people. And he invites us so graciously, despite our stumbling, to participate that in us. And we don't have to do it alone. We have here a community. I know some of you, not all of you, but we are here together today. And I believe that we do love Jesus and that we do want to share it. And so I ask you, as you think of that one person that you might want to share with, think of someone in our congregation that might help you share that message. So the Magi, they traveled in a group. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they worked together in a group. The disciples were a group. It's not something we have to do solo. And so as a community, how can we better swim in this stream of evangelism, bringing the word of God to the community and lives of those around us? I'll invite the praise team up to, to close us in song, and I'd ask you to join with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is for all people, that there is nothing about any one of us here that excludes us from coming to you to know your message. And God, it's sometimes difficult to, to share your word, not because we don't believe it, but because there are so many things swirling around us, our busyness, our communities, our jobs, our school, our families. We would ask that these things serve as encouragement for us rather than a distraction. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we continue to dive into your word to, to grow our own faith, that your spirit would move in us and show us people that are ready for your message, that are ready to receive your grace and your peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we do not have to do this alone, but that we do it with you and with your spirit. Amen.